on these three lives. Welcome, listeners, to the 43rd chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Scott Adams episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. This week, we are covering Scott Adams, a high-profile cartoonist who predicted Trump's rise in 2015, then flirted for a while with the movement, and eventually became a full MAGA apologist. We will attempt to chart the course of his life before and after the fateful 2016 election. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a tale of persuasion, a tale of hypnotism, a tale of branded burritos and New Year's orgasms. And although the topic may not seem related to our favorite conspiracy theory, all things do lead to QAnon. And Scott Adams himself was eventually forced to address it on YouTube. Let's say you said to me, I'll give you $100 or you'll be killed if you're wrong. Would you take that bet that Q is not real? Yes, because it's a free $100. Put on your freaking Q shirt. Go to the rally. Make sure you talk to CNN so they can make sure that all Trump supporters look like freaking idiots. The Q people make me look like an idiot just because, you know, I, I say good things about the president and that kind of, in most people's minds, that puts me on the same team as the Q people. I don't like that. I don't like being on the Q team. Um, he thinks uh, the Scott doth protest too much. Um, he seems pretty triggered, uh, but I would argue that Scott, on the cosmic plane, shares certain psychic characteristics with the bakers of QAnon. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. QAnon News. First up, QAnon follower cited after 136 uh, dogs were discovered in a California home. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now, now this is too far. This is this yeah. is very strange story. So uh, it, it, what happens here is that dogs start eating each other. It's like a it's like a an aquarium, you know. On May 30th, 136 dogs were found living uh, in reportedly uh, deplorable conditions in a multi-million dollar home in Orange, California. Uh, the owners of the home are uh, Joe and Ed Reitkop. Ed Reitkop is a lawyer, and Joe Reitkop is the CEO of the nonprofit Make California Great Again, Inc. And according hmm. to her Twitter account, she is an active QAnon follower. Uh, she has WWG1WGA in her Twitter bio and often posts about QAnon. For a second there, I thought they were twins, like they were the uh, right cop brothers living right, together. Yeah. But no, it's, it's a couple, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a couple. Sergeant Phil McMullen of the Orange Police Department told reporters, quote, There was very little furniture inside of the residence and there was dog excrement, urine all over inside on the floor. Yeah, he so, says that. But what the fuck are you going to do with 136 dogs? Yeah, good point. Uh, you know, I think this is kind of an interesting story uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one. Uh, why are you? Why you have this big, beautiful, expensive home in sort of a prime real estate, and then you shit it all up with a giant pack of dogs? Because ha mental over illness, a hundred dogs. Yeah, yeah. Because mental illness overrides wealth. Like it doesn't fucking. You can like Good be point. the wealthiest ever, and you're like living I mean, in your own feces in your bathroom. Yeah. Uh, usually, like QAnon followers are are. We usually imagine them to be, uh, you know, someone who is maybe not not so well off. Yeah. Uh, someone who is maybe, uh, you know, struggling. Look at Notch. Like, he has plenty of money and he right. rolls around in his own, uh, you know, intellectual Good feces point. every day. Yes, it's weird. Like, it's always weird when you see, like, these like these super wealthy QAnon followers. Like, yeah. why do you need this? Why are you why are you turning to this, of all things? It's like, very strange. Bill Gates has a little cage he sleeps in where he releases fresh mosquitoes every night just so he can experience that kind of thing. <laughs> money doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. My second story is uh, QAnon community has a mixed reaction to CBS interview with Attorney General Barr. If you remember, John Huber, the uh, U.S. prosecutor from Utah, has a huge role in the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, they often assume that Huber was going to be the one that like rolled up the deep state with tens of thousands of sealed indictments. Uh, but in a recent interview with CBS journalist Jan Crawford, uh, Barr basically said that Huber hasn't been doing much of anything at all. Uh, here's what Barr said in that interview. Right. So uh, Huber had originally been asked to take a look at the FISA applications and the electronic surveillance. Uh, but then he stood back and put that on hold uh, while the Office of Inspector General was conducting its review, uh, which would have been normal for the department. Um, and he was essentially on standby in case Mr. Horowitz uh, referred a matter to him to be handled criminally. Uh, so he has not been active on this front in recent months. And so uh, Durham is taking over that role. It's amazing to me because I do this podcast with you guys and I pay, I pay it. I feel like I pay attention. But these names that the that they keep switching like Huber, Barr, all this, stuff, like as soon as it's mentioned, my eyes roll back into my head and I warg into like a nearby raccoon or something like it's I just I just don't care. Like am I, I, I should know about this stuff, right? Why? It's all the same. Many in the QAnon community were disturbed by Barr saying that Huber was essentially on standby <laughs> and was not active on this front in recent months because that doesn't yeah. track with the idea that Huber has been racking up tens of thousands of sealed indictments. It also doesn't work with like QAnon in general. Essentially on standby is not a sentence they want to put in memes. Yeah, it's like exactly. very It's very <laughs> it's non-committal. Like, oh, yeah, Huber, yeah. yeah, Huber's bringing the hammer. He's, get, he's, he's he, he was going to bring down Hillary Clinton. Well, it's, but, it's time, Patriots, but it, just for a moment. Yeah, maybe yeah. Put, just pause for it. I'll put you on hold. Well, is it possible that uh, Barr is covering for Huber and oh. it's, and actually he does not want the deep state to know that Huber has mm. been uh, issuing That's sealed possible. indictments? I just think it's interesting. Barr is now so mentally ill, he's talking in third person about himself. <laughs> I, I am out of orange juice. <laughs> Uh, it's not your fridge, sir. <laughs> Help me. However, uh, Attorney General Barr also said uh, this in that interview. The other issue he's been working on are related to Hillary Clinton. Um, those are winding down and hopefully we'll be in a position to bring those to fruition. So that was very cryptic, but uh, the QAnon community is, is holding out hope that this means that Huber is going to actually do something to drop the hammer on Clinton. And, you know, it, if this turns out to be another like James Comey, no reasonable prosecutor, we looked into it. There's really nothing yeah. there. Oh, this will be devastating to the QAnon community. Yeah. They, they, they will not like that at all. This is below office humor. Like this is the most boring soap opera set in in like a fucking administrative <laughs> building in yeah, the middle of Ohio. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these old fucks just wheeling around and everyone parses their words down to like the adjective. <laughs> like, who right. they yeah. just move from room to room talking. This is like when you, if you like were to play like a brand, let's say a brand new MMORPG <laughs> and you're been super excited about it for months. And please, it finally, God, please. And it finally releases on, on, on the system and you download it and you boot it up. And the entire game is uh, essentially a tutorial uh, That's right. mission that just never gets off the ground. It's yeah. just like it's there's always promise that a bigger world is going to open up. But no, you got to go kill three rats in some merchant's basement. Oh, my God. It's like if uh, the Matrix like never really fully started. and He spent <laughs> his entire time scrambling around that office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. They, they it's, it's one of the, it's the saddest part of QAnon. It's just waiting for Godot. They just like they just they're just waiting. It's like the next document, the next investigation, the next thing yes. is going to be finally the one that does it. The, the real theory going around is that like is that Trump was like, oh, uh, bring down Clinton to to like Sessions, and Sessions like, oh, okay. And so Sessions <laughs> Sessions told Huber, uh, look into this Clinton business, wink, wink, and Huber's like, yeah, all right, fine. And then, and so he was just basically doing nothing because he knew that there was nothing to investigate. Yeah. So you, you know that we're going to do a QAnon version of the uh, Beckett play Waiting for Godot and and Jake is going to play Lucky. Yes. Mm. And he's going to have just like that really long part. It's going to be amazing. Just we yeah. definitely actually will do that. We That's, should. It's should. absolutely future, future bonus episode. It's spiritually yeah. meant to be. Scott Adams with Julian Field. It is unclear why the podcast Twitter account is blocked by Scott Adams. I tried to find a tweet, a reply, anything that might indicate an offense I had committed in the name of the podcast, but I found nothing. So as a response to this unwarranted slight, Scott, I've prepared an entire episode to slight you. An episode which, although I may be responsible for the writing of, uh, is definitely not my responsibility in general. Uh, So now is as good a time as any, Mr. Scott, to introduce you to my co-hosts, Travis and Jake. Hello. When you inevitably decide to strike back by drawing one of one or several of us as a as an effeminate cartoon weasel wait a minute oh may i suggest these two fine gentlemen wait i don't want to be a cartoon guy i would be a <laughs> lame office guy in dilbert <laughs> jake burt and trav burt uh are coming but uh i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself on june 8th 1957 scott raymond adams is born in Wyndham, new york to parents paul and virginia adams Scott wants you to know that he's of half-German descent, the other half being a mix of English, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and Dutch. He is part of the boomer caste that love to mention their American-Indian ancestry. Scott has stated that he has a, quote, small amount of it. I think we can all agree that boomers shouldn't have access to DNA testing, as it invariably makes them more annoying. Scott's origin story is the kind of refined elevator pitch that comes from repetition. As a child, he falls in love with Charles Schultz's legendary Peanuts comic strip. Scott credits the strip with helping him learn how to read. At age six, he begins drawing his own comics. By 11, he wins a drawing competition. He goes to Wynnum Ashland Jewett Central Public School and graduates as a valedictorian in 1975. He then heads to University of California in Berkeley, where he gets an MBA in economics and management in 1986. Scott immediately dives into the workforce, joining the Crocker National Bank in San Francisco and remaining there until 1986. He begins there as a teller and claims to have been robbed at gunpoint twice in four months, which prompted him to take a management training course. What? (laughs) He works in a variety of roles, culminating in his coronation as supervisor. Wait, wait, wait. wait. He he got robbed, so so his his boss said, your management material for how you handled that? He got robbed twice as a teller, and he was like, I think I should be something else. He was like, I want to be like behind even further, deeper (laughs) into the building. Keep in mind, this is the kind of thing that this kind of guy likes to bring up, because it's like, it makes him feel dangerous. During this time, Scott invents what will become his most famous character. Dilbert is a single male engineer with shitty social skills and a dysfunctional romantic life. He's an office worker forced to put up with his idiot boss all day. But thank God, Dilbert has a best friend. Dogbert, his inexplicably intelligent pet, was originally named Dildog. Really? (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't explain 
Also, this is a Whether. direct a direct ripoff of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, who has also has a very intelligent mm. uh, English speaking. It's actually more of a ripoff companion. of Pinky in the Brain because Dogbird ends up being that kind of uh, cynical scammer, hell bent on making tons of money and taking over the world. Basically, mm. his character arc like ends with him apparently becoming like the king of the world, and and Dilbert finds out by being transported into the future and. And being under his rule or whatever. There's, it's when you write a comic for years, stuff happens. You have to. It's impossible not to go places. Understood. The, expa- the expanded Dilbert universe. <laughs> yeah, he begins as a pet, but then he develops into this kind of uh, brain from Pinky and the Brain style character. But I'd like you to remember this character arc, as it will be crucial to understanding Scott's eventual devolution. Scott, during his time as a bank employee, begins pitching the Dilbert comic strip to publishers. He gets a no from the New Yorker and Playboy. He almost gives up, but a letter from a fan allegedly inspires him to continue. In 1986, he leaves the bank to work for telephone company Pacific Bell. He works there until 1995, and this period sees Dilbert take off. Many of the characters in Dilbert are inspired by Scott's co-workers at Pacific Bell. Three years into his employment there in 1989, United Media picks up Dilbert. Scott juggles his day job with early morning drawing and writing. By 1991, the strip is published in 100 papers. By 1994, that number has quadrupled. Scott does something unusual for the time by including his email address in the strips, thus creating an easy avenue for fans to connect with him directly. Although this is now downplayed by his clearly self-edited Wikipedia, Scott also credits affirmations for the strip's success. Now, I'd like to pause here to acknowledge my shameful history with Dilbert and Adams. In my early teenage years, I did enjoy reading Dilbert. I even owned several Dilbert books and a tearaway calendar. To be fair to me, I was a fan of comic strips in general. I stand by Bill Watterson, the author of Calvin and Hobbes, the best comic strip out there. Here, here. Uh, and also a genius uh, bit of uh, American philosophy. I also think Gary Larson's The Far Side has aged decently well. Here, here. Dilbert, unfortunately, really did not age very well. But that's a story for later in the episode. For now, let's talk about a book I read in my early teens. 1997 literary masterpiece, The Dilbert Future, Thriving on Stupidity in the 21st Century. In it, Scott outlines his belief system, and that's where these affirmations come in. If it's possible to control your environment uh, through your thoughts or steer your perceptions or soul, if you prefer... Through other universes, uh, I'll bet the secret to doing that is a process called affirmations. (laughs) I first heard of this technique uh, from a friend who had read a book on the topic. I don't recall the name of the book, so I apologize to the author for not mentioning it. My information came to me secondhand. Like Jake's stories. I only mention it here because it formed my personal experience. The process, uh, as it was described to me, uh, involved visualizing what you want and writing it down 15 times in a row, uh, once a day, until you obtain the thing you visualized. Uh, The suggested form would be something like this. I, Scott Adams, will win a Pulitzer Prize. And then a little later in the book. So I tried affirmations. I figured it didn't cost anything, so I had nothing to lose. Uh, My friend said it worked for her, coincidences and all, so I had a testimonial that sounded credible. It wasn't proof, but it was better than no testimonial at all. I picked what I thought was a very unlikely goal and went at it. Uh, Within a week, uh, coincidences 
started to happen to me too. Uh, amazing coincidences, uh, strings of them. I won't mention the specific goal I was working on as it was a private matter, but uh, within a few months of the goal was accomplished exactly as I had written it. I uh, will not be a virgin. Yeah, it's like, this sounds like, yeah, he's trying to get, I yeah. want to get more dates. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Adams then tests this technique out on the stock market. Both of the stocks he uses it on experience unexpected growth. He's convinced. He uses it many times afterwards, always surprised by its success. Then Dilbert comes along. I used the affirmations again many times, each time with unlikely success. So much so that by 1988, I decided I wanted to become a famous syndicated cartoonist. Uh, it actually felt like a modest goal. A little later in the text. Reporters often ask me if I am amazed at the success of the Dilbert comic strip. I definitely would be amazed if not for my bizarre experience with affirmations. As it was, I expected it. After Scott uses affirmations to, quote, make it the most successful comic on the planet, he applies it to avoid getting cancer. Now, several years ago, after having a considerable success with affirmations, I developed a large lump on my neck. When the x-rays came back, the cancer expert told me it was probably cancer. If it wasn't, he couldn't think of anything else it could be. Great doctor. But uh, sometimes these lumps turn out to be, in his words, just one of those things that go away. Uh, to me, the envelope wasn't open yet. Not until the biopsy. I had a week to think about it. It's kind of the week you don't forget. <laughs> I knew that the needle would enter the lump and draw out a sample of its contents. If the sample was red, blood, it was cancer. Uh, if it was clear, it was just one of those things. I decided it would be clear. The doctor was surprised when it came out clear. I wasn't. So he's, he's very rapidly getting into uh, galaxy brain territory very, very early. This mm -hmm. is before Dilbert's success, before all of the stuff. He was already using affirmations to make money on the stock market, uh, avoid getting cancer, and then eventually it was responsible for Dilbert going big. But, uh, you know, he explains that his affirmations will eventually disprove evolution in the same book. <laughs> I'm gonna boil. I'm I'm here to boil Travis's brain until, until he can't even do the next episode. I started the chapter by predicting that evolution uh, would be debunked in your lifetime. I think physicists will raise enough questions about the nature of the universe that evolution will require a second look. Uh, for example, if time doesn't move forward or if there is no cause and effect, uh, evolution. Makes no sense as a concept. I don't know the specifics of how evolution will lose its appeal, but I feel it coming. If there's no cause and effect, then there's like the bunks like all of science. Yeah, mm -hmm. that yeah. like so I like like there if there's no cause and effect, then there are no chemical reactions. You've debunked chemistry successfully. Yeah. Uh -huh. What the what what's this? What the hell does this even mean? Scott, he loves this idea of a talent stack, which means. None of your talents are particularly amazing. They're just good, and you stack them together until it's a unique talent stack, and you become successful due to it. This is just a mask for saying that Scott thinks he's smart enough that if he pays attention to anything, he's going to be amazing at it. Mm. Forget the studies. Yes, he did business studies. Yes, he just worked a corporate job. Yes, he got decent at drawing really simple little cartoons and making office humor. But doesn't that mean he also gets to challenge gravity? <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
because this uh, made me re-examine the entire chapter and unearth even more amazing claims. In it, Scott attempts to debunk gravity and claims that the expanding universe theory appeared in his head fully formed one morning. He also attempts to debunk motion itself, musing that it might be an optical illusion. Finally, he attacks cause and effect using an elaborate story about hypnotizing a friend who claimed to be a psychic in an attempt to debunk her powers. Instead, he got pilled because she detected a rash near his armpit and correctly tells him that he's afraid of water. She then brings up a bridge and Adams recalls that as a toddler, his dad lifted him over the railing of a bridge. All of this, in Scott's opinion, proves that cause and effect needs to be re-examined because, quote, it seems plausible that the universe has connections that we can't see. He's just turning into like a new age quantum mechanics proves that we live in alternate dimensions business. Yeah, this is in his Dilbert book of 1997. And this kind of weird thing about Dilbert, it goes back that far. But now it's literally a boomers uh, MAGA rant uh, blog page on the Dilbert site. Like the majority of if you're looking into Dilbert, you're going to see this man rant for an hour on YouTube. Probably. Which is, a, or write an article about this kind of shit. Um, but it, it, this is just the beginning. You guys are not even, this guy is an onion. You know, we're ta- we talk about Pier Gint. This guy is the real Pier Gint. You look a little deeper, you find more and more things. In 1995, Scott quits his job and goes full-time Dilbert. This is followed by perhaps the biggest break in Scott's career, which comes in 1996 when he releases his first business book, The Dilbert Principle. It becomes a number one bestseller. That year, Dilbert is in 800 newspapers. In 1998, he launches the Dilbert TV show. In May of 1999, Scott Adams goes on the Charlie Rose interview show, following in the footsteps of his hero, Charles Schultz. I am pleased to have Scott Adams join us now for a conversation about his guy, Dilbert. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Charles Schultz was on this program once, and he said that he thinks that along with jazz, comic strips are the one pure... American art form. You agree? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the uh, the best cartoonists are probably uh, coming out of the United States. I think we kind of own this art form, so I'll go with that. Yeah, is that most of the best come out of the United States? Is that not? I mean, are, are, how prevalent are cartoons around the world? Well, they're everywhere. They didn't originate here. You know, I say that ours are the best because I can't read those other languages, so <laughs> they don't do much for me. Do you need to read them to sort of get the sense of them? Well, some of them. It helps, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, well, That's the first yeah, question. And, the guy, and he's like, well, yeah. uh, surely some, 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 yeah, people, sure. some good ones come Maybe from Maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's like, he tries to pull a joke off of like, I don't understand the language, but this is very consistent for him is... His joke has an, a, a weird underlying meanness and yeah. tension, so you can't really laugh, and it doesn't also it doesn't come across as a joke immediately. Uh, but this is something you'll see in all his blog posts and all his rants, is he'll make a joke, like at one point he makes a joke that he... He, he comes out in support of Hillary before the election and says that the reason he's doing it is because he lives in California and he's going to get killed if he isn't pro-Hillary. Oh. Which which is like a joke, but then he can't really snap out of it. He obviously wants to be public. He wants to like push himself out there. He wants to be on Charlie Rose and make all these cartoons. But once he gets there, once he actually talks on YouTube or does the interview, it seems like he's barely tolerating talking to you. Adams is not satisfied being the author of an office humor comic strip. He wants to be a philosopher as well. But unlike Bill Watterson, Adams' attempts at depth feel far from effortless. His output is relentless, and his writing tends towards self-help and grandiose statements masked by broad humor. 
This pattern continues to surface throughout Adam's career, and like for many other boomers, it gets attached to a political awakening around 2016. But again, let's not get ahead of ourselves. In 2000, the Dilbert TV show is canceled, but Scott isn't worried. The comic strip is now carried by 2,000 newspapers in 57 countries and is being translated into 19 languages. Adams founds Scott Adams Food, Inc. and creates the Dill Burrito in 1999. <laughs> a, a vegan burrito, he says, will be, quote, the blue gene of food. Imagine making something as dumb as just a character renamed burrito. And like the, the main thing was that it was vegan, so he invented a kind of protein substitute. But, you know, he wasn't the only one doing that. It's a relatively generic enterprise. And saying that it's going to be the blue genes of food. Food. I mean, this is like some Krusty the Clown kind of shit. Yeah, when you, you wake up every morning, people are going to have two dill burritos and they're going to stuff their legs into each one of them yeah. and wear them around like pants. Scott explains his intentions. Diet is the number one uh, cause of health-related problems in the world. Uh, I figured I could put a dent in that problem and make some money at the same time. The company shutters in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, in 2001, Scott writes God's Debris, in which he puts forward a theory known as pandeism. In Adam's version, God blows themselves up to see what would happen, and this causes the universe to exist. He also claims that Christians and Muslims are subconsciously aware that their religions are false, which is why they sin without fears of repercussions. He will go on to claim in 2017 that God's Debris, alongside his 2004 book, The Religion War, would be his, quote, ultimate legacy. This is the first I'm hearing about these. Well, it's, that's okay. Well, it's once he dies, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, the latter book is a fictional story set in 2040. It features a violent Middle Eastern caliphate fighting a civilizational war against a Western Christian alliance. The Western protagonist ends up building a wall around the jihadis and murdering them all. Adams later tells a journalist, quote, I have to be careful because I'm talking about something pretty close to genocide, so I'm not saying I prefer it. Uh, I'm saying I predict it. Okay, so so Scott Adams wrote like a Turner Diaries kind of shit. That's, yeah, that's I, like some I, weird Steve yeah. Bannon Gorka like uh, fictional story. It's it's a bit like the the Elders of Zion because it's like, oh no, this is fiction. But in it, if you think it's not fiction, which he kind of goes out of his way to like you know, make it feel like no, what it, real life, then the the jihadis are evil dogs that should be walled off and killed. Yes, you know, speculative apocalyptic drama is a common feature of extremist movements. So, uh, damn. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a, a speculative apocalyptic novel, but it, it definitely did not involve Muslims getting slaughtered. I'm pretty sure you can write speculative science fiction and speculative apocalyptic fiction. Well, without can if it's if it's a if it's a sort of a vision of a clash of like different uh, cultures yeah then, then yeah yeah it's probably it's probably extremist propaganda certainly you can star in it without having any brain damage i mean just look at mel gibson he's fine he's yeah. never said anything <laughs> weird in his fucking life love mel gibson in 2004 scott suffers from a re-emergence of both focal and spasmodic dysphonia rare diseases that interfere with writing and speech he is operated on in 2008 and recovers normal functions. This is kind of an interesting one because it is, you know, a hard thing that he went through. Uh, apparently, it's the kind of thing where you can't speak normally, but you can speak in like voices. S same way, like he couldn't draw on paper, but he was able to draw on tablets. Like it's just one of those things. It's a neurological thing hmm. where uh, the connection to like your vocal cords, I believe, changed. And so he had a, an operation Weird. to rewire his vocal cords. It's pretty fascinating. And, you know, I mean, I'm not here to make fun of him for any of that. That's definitely something that's uh, hard to go through. 
But let's be honest, we are not here for the fact that Scott Adams is a certified hypnotist or that he's a vegetarian. We're here because Scott Adams went on tilt in 2016 and has never recovered. Before we fast forward to the fateful year of Donald Trump's election, let's examine a couple of statements by Scott Adams that will give you an idea of his range of beliefs. In 2007, Adams writes a blog post entitled Bloomberg for President. Here are some passages. In a previous post, I said Bill Gates would be a good president because he's rational, smart, successful, and has a good track record of targeted philanthropy. Uh, and he wouldn't be in it for the money. I soon discovered that Bill Gates is not as beloved as one needs to be to get elected president, uh, and he isn't interested in the job. Moving on, second choice, Mike Bloomberg, mayor of New York City. Nice. And then a little later, Bloomberg could fund his own campaigns. He'd be beholden to no one. Now, I've often said that a real leader would tackle problems in the order of their logical priority, uh, not the order they appear in the New York Times headlines. Uh, Bloomberg has gone after smoking in public uh, and trans fat in restaurants. Smoking and a bad diet kill more people than any other cause. That's a leader. Could a short uh, Jewish, highly competent guy get elected president? So already the galaxy brain is is on yeah. display. You know, he, he sounds like he is one of these guys who just really likes being contrarian in these really obnoxious yeah. ways. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised he's not like on, uh, on the Yang Gang quite yet. Because he sounds like kind of a Yang Gang kind of guy. He's so far down Trump, like he could not switch. There's right. no way. No, no, no. And we'll see why, because he's he's running a whole kind of thought system around 2020 and, and Trump in general. Um, right. But really, I mean, we can agree that he's a subpar cartoonist uh, who got big due to the novelty of office humor. He's intellectually below Marmaduke. He clearly sees patterns and his brain matches them to similar patterns in other domains. But his interpretation of these patterns is where Adams fails completely. He wasn't just satisfied being good and successful at one thing. The American dream of the rich Renaissance man was calling so before Obama is elected in 2008, Adams writes for the CNN website. I should pause here and confess my personal biases, uh, since the messenger is part of the story. Uh, on social issues, I lean libertarian, uh, minus the crazy stuff. Uh, Money-wise, I can't support a candidate uh, who promises to tax the bejesus out of my bracket, uh, give the windfall to a bunch of clowns with a 14% approval rating, Congress, and a hope that they spend it wisely. Unfortunately, the alternative to the guy who promises to pillage my wallet is a lukewarm cadaver, so I'm in trouble either way. I just hope whoever gets elected notices that the economists in my survey don't think that raising my taxes is a priority. He just called um, John McCain a lukewarm cadaver. <laughs> Another prediction come true by, oh my by Scott God. Adams. <laughs> Maybe his affirmations uh, oh do, God. do pack uh, some reality after all. Every morning, sit down at my desk 15 times in a row, I write, John McCain will be a lukewarm cadaver. 
And guess what, ladies and gents? This is not me. This is Scott Adams. You can't accuse me of, uh, you know, of, of saying I'm going to kill well, somebody. I wouldn't say he's quite uh, lukewarm at this point, but probably cold. And... All right, all right, all right. We got to move on from this terribleness. So the article involves Scott, quote, commissioning a survey of over 500 economists, which, as he mentioned, they, they recommend that no one should raise taxes on him. Uh, but they broadly conclude that Obama would be the candidate best suited to improving the economy, uh, which he tries to, like, navigate around in a million ways. He loves logic until it doesn't prove his point, and then he just sands off the edges. So he closed the article by saying this. Uh, many of you will wonder how reliable uh, economists are. Uh, in my view, if an economist uses a complicated model to predict uh, just about anything, you can ignore it. By analogy, a doctor can't tell you the exact date of your death in 50 years, but if a doctor tells you to eat less and exercise more, that's good advice even if you later get hit by a bus. Well, along those same lines, economists can give useful general advice uh, on the economy, even if you know there will be surprises. Still, be skeptical. Think of it this way. He's a, he's a guy rich enough and stupid enough to pay 500 people to answer him so he can make a point, which he then twists the data to make. <laughs> so, And then tells you to be skeptical at the end because... It's like doctors. They don't really know when you're going to get cancer. They just tell you to eat better. Yeah, that's better. very weird. It's like it's like he it's like he values expertise on one level. That's why he commissioned the 500 uh, economists. But the the other level is he 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 dismisses the entire field entirely by saying yeah. ah, but their opinion is worthless. Don't trust them, or I'd be highly skeptical, or watch out for black swan events that might make their predictions irrelevant. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it is very bizarre. Uh, in 2011, Scott writes a blog post exploring what he would do if he were president. In it, he urges readers to write in his name when they're polled about presidential candidates. So this is another amazing hubris on his part. Don't be too concerned about the fact that I have no moral center and no qualifications whatsoever for the job of president. I've promised in previous blog posts that if elected, I will do whatever Bill Clinton advises me to do, uh, which would lead to policies that are a sensible middle ground. Triangulation. The guy who uh, is responsible for repealing Glass-Steagall. Uh, is his economics advisor. <laughs> he later outlines how he would tackle fixing the economy. And this is just, this is like if you asked a 14-year-old boy to fix the economy on a piece of paper with some Crayolas. As president, I would be uh, realistic about how much any one person, including the president, uh, can do to fix the economy. Uh, but economies do respond to attitudes and optimism, and I would work uh, directly on our national mood. <laughs> He's going to put some mood candles up. Uh, for starters... I would ask every citizen to contribute to our economic turnaround in whatever way each of us is best suited. I'd ask rich people to hire a few more people than they would otherwise prefer. For the unemployed, I'd ask them to actively work on their job skills by taking classes, volunteering as unpaid interns, or whatever it takes. Uh, I'd ask everyone to exercise daily and eat right and keep our national energy high and our health care costs low. I'd ask rich people to hire a few more people. That's legislation. You're going to have to pass their buds because rich people don't like sharing. The unemployed, I'll tell them to get off their asses and work. 
Okay, that's I'm pretty sure they've heard that message before. And then he talks about asking everyone to exercise daily and eat right, which, by the way, Michelle Obama spent like the entire fucking mandate doing. I will demand everyone drink plenty of water every day. This is my. Yeah, he's going to keep our national energy high. He's he's working directly on our national mood. Do you recognize this kind of emotionalism, the attitude that you mentioned when you talk about Trump and QAnon, how everything is about emotion and attitude? Yeah. Well, uh, let's see what the plan is to get that working. Now, the key to this plan is that we uh, all need to choose our own type of sacrifice, and we all need a way to broadcast our sacrifice to our neighbors. Like uh, Sacrifice needs to be observed uh, to be sustained. <laughs> Uh, some have said that recycling only works because each family's effort is displayed once per week at the curb. Similarly, uh, citizens need a visible evidence of each person's sacrifice toward fixing the economy. Uh, perhaps each type of sacrifice could be signified by a color. Uh, people who wear green bracelets uh, might be honing their job skills. Uh, people who wear purple uh, have hired one or more employee than needed. People who wear blue have volunteered to be mentors or un unpaid tutors and so on. Uh, the bracelets would be optional, of course, uh, just as they have been for the Livestrong fight against cancer. And that program has been hugely successful. Uh, as president, I would borrow any system that works. This is like when you give a 14-year-old boy, like I said, Crayolas, and you're like, draw your dream house. And it's like, this room is the video game room. Yeah. This room is an aquarium. It's like, dude, you oh, don't I, know anything about this. Why can't you just shut the fuck up? I'm going to put a fireman's pole from my bedroom down <laughs> exactly. to the basement. Exactly. We've got to broadcast our sacrifice by wearing colored bands and exercising. <laughs> That's, uh, this, is, this sounds, sounds suspiciously like, like uh, <laughs> it sounds like yeah, dystopian, honestly. The Jews will wear a nice yellow band <laughs> in the shape of a star to, signi to, to signify their sacrifice, which is to be behind walled off compounds. <laughs> Dear God, I mean, just a galaxy brain. And this is before 2016, so his brain hasn't even broken properly yet. So in a 2012 uh, blog post, Adam sets up a hypothetical. What if Obama killed a guy? Here it is in his words. Now, for the record, uh, President <laughs> Obama did not technically kill anyone to get elected. Uh, that was just a hypothetical example. Uh, but he is putting an American citizen in jail for 10 years to life for operating medical marijuana dispensaries in California where it is legal under state law. Personally, I'd prefer death uh, to spending the final decades of my life in prison. So while President Obama didn't technically kill a citizen, <laughs> he is certainly ruining this fellow's life and his family's lives and the lives of countless other minor drug offenders. And he is doing it uh, to advance his career. If that's not a firing offense, what the hell is? So he ends that article by endorsing Romney for president. Uh, <laughs> a course. man who I think we can agree is way more of a lukewarm cadaver than John McCain. <laughs> yeah. In 2014, Scott divorces Shelley Miles, his wife of eight years. I'm only bringing this up because it'll be important. Uh, the divorced guy energy gets much stronger from this point onwards. In 2015, after saying he won't endorse a candidate for president, Scott starts publishing what will be a very long series of blog posts about Trump. It begins in May 2015 with a post entitled, How Trump Becomes President. In it, he argues that Trump is both a social liberal and an economic conservative. 
He states that Hillary will probably win, but argues that Trump might strategically upset her lead because, quote, I would expect him to dial back his crazy sounding stuff as his poll numbers grow. That's not uh, all Trump would need to do to secure victory. Here is Adams on that. If he wants the independents and some Democrats to vote his way, he needs something bigger. He needs a Trump card. And he has it. His hair. <laughs> I believe Donald Trump could become president of the United States if he promised to shave his head upon winning. Or perhaps he could do it a month before the election to suck all the media attention from his competitor. Right. Think about it. Voters are emotional creatures, and they would love such an act of humility coming from such an egotistical jerk. Uh, people love to see other people change. That's the formula for successful movies. Uh, the protagonist changes when the audience thinks such change is not possible. We love that. Hillary Clinton has a 95% chance of being our next president unless we get some surprises. But the other 5% is all Trump. So if Clinton stumbles, Trump is running the country. Assuming he shaves his head. Political analysis from the great. I mean, what? this sounds like you're borderline on like mentally degrading. By this point, he's just living his life as like a performance art troll. You know? Yeah, that's it. He does. That, he's just he's like, like he's just living the troll. Yeah. Imagine having the thought, oh, if Trump cut his hair, it would help him win, and then being like, this is going to be today's <laughs> blog post. Right. He just keeps going. Every day he has to get up, make something, write something, and the the comics aren't enough, fellas. It's not enough to draw a little shitty dog with glasses and and write three words into the cells. Yeah, because it's not him. You know, Dilbert's cool and all, but, but like, but but, but what? It's not. It's me. not me. It's yeah. not me. Like, and you yeah. got, and 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 it's not as good as I can be unfiltered. So yeah, Dilbert was just your entryway to me. Actually, like, it's my brain that's fascinating, not the product of it. You know, mm. and of course, this is a form of insane narcissism, and it makes sense then that he would consider Trump another fellow like. An, an, another fellow, fellow yeah. guy with like a great uh, talent stack, as he likes to right. put it. So when Trump declares his candidacy in June of 2015, most major media outlets immediately begin showering him with attention. The man is polarizing, and this means ratings. But they aren't the only ones getting bizarrely fixated on Donald Trump. Soon after learning that Trump was in the race, Scott Adams begins producing a ton of content about him. By the time February 2016 rolls around, he has written nearly 80 blog posts about Trump. That's, that's February 2016. We're not even close to the election yet. He also, at that point, compiles his Trump articles and notes, quote, The fun of it is seeing how early I predicted Trump's rise. Blog post titles include... Clown genius. <laughs> Trump engineers a linguistic kill shot for Fiorina. The Daily Beast reports on my Trump posts. Wizard attacks wizard. <laughs> the alpha in the room. The upside of Ben Carson. My predictions about my predictions. Yeah, it's... It, what it, the fuck? I think it's the thoughts that you get when the plastic bag starts pushing against your nostrils <laughs> and it's near the end of that process. At some point, Scott discovers Periscope and YouTube. He begins a series of video streams entitled, quote, Real Coffee with Scott Adams. Here's the description of the show on his website. Scott Adams is best known as the creator of the Dilbert comic strip. But in his daily, sometimes twice daily podcast, Adams uses his training as a hypnotist and a lifelong student of persuasion to analyze current events, mostly Trump-related, through a persuasion lens. In doing so, Adams offers you a new way to understand your reality. You can also expect to pick up some valuable persuasion techniques along the way. Most of what you will hear is spontaneous, unrehearsed, and casual. 
the best way to listen is while sipping your favorite beverage. <laughs> this kind of guy loves saying shit like that. I fucking that, that that's one of those. <laughs> it's a real like pet peeve of mine. Is people are yeah. like, I'm being like, oh, you know, best enjoyed with a. A sip of your favorite. It's like, no. Oh, you're going to love when you find Life out. Life is not that simple. I can't just sit down, make a beverage that I like, sip it and go, oh, the, the perfect, uh, the perfect uh, situation to, I, I to don't know. digest content. He's done it <laughs> 550 times. I know. I Every saw episode gets opened with what he calls a simultaneous sip yeah, in which like, he I've, sips I've, at the same time as whoever. And sometimes he estimates that not enough people did it so he'll do it a second time. Be like, all right, let's try that one again. So he'll open his pod. Imagine if we open this podcast trying to take a simultaneous sip with all our listeners. So they I'm, can't afford a drink. Okay. <laughs> they haven't even tasted water in years. I'm sitting here. They have to drink the runoff of soda machines in the back of <laughs> parking lots. I'm sitting here with my favorite uh, beverage, a delicious cup of coffee, and I'm going to take a sip. <laughs> That's exactly it. He really is a pile of '90s aphorisms, just kind of yeah. Together. He really is. He he's he's a brilliant a brilliant uh, composition of so, '90s uh, t-shirts, uh, Big Johnson t-shirts. Yeah, he's uh he's no fear. Yeah, uh, big, big dog. dog. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. He's yeah. he's all of those like Billabong and Quicksilver shirts that tried to get on the same bandwagon briefly because yeah. they saw that it was working. When he's a little when he's a little too caffeinated, he's leaning more into like the Massimo territory, possibly <laughs> even Stussy. Dude, hell's yeah! I used to have like these faded uh, green uh, Massimo sh- uh, shoes, skate shoes, and I thought it was the fucking coolest. Yeah, me too. I had um, I begged my parents to get me uh, a pair of Airwalks. Yes, classic, Airwalks. classic, like huge, black and huge. white. And then you want your Jenko jeans to basically disappear your foot. <laughs> I never got into the Jenko jeans. Those were too, they I were have too photos. big for me. I have photos that oh, I'll never it. show anybody. I, I want to see those after the or show. I have sh- a shaved blonde head, like Eminem style with blonde, uh, blonde, like dyed nice. hair. I can and totally Jenko jeans it. and like an oversized t-shirt. And I'm standing in like an airport parking lot. And like my dad took the photo. <laughs> <laughs> I had a uh, I had a Massimo t-shirt I begged my parents to get oh, and, it, and it had yeah. um the slogan on it was uh the dog with the bone is always in trouble <laughs> And um, it had like See, a that, that is, it had that's, like a that's weird, Scott Adams. That yeah, could be a Scott Adams quote. It had like a weird sexual connotation that I don't think anybody really picked up on. Yeah. I thought I was so cool. That's I right. showed up. I showed up at school first day wearing it. Still got made fun of. Oh, oh. man, dude! I also got made fun of in high school. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Uh, okay, so Scott has made over 500 of these videos at this point making us look like pathetic and lazy content creators. He's usually just sitting somewhere in his house, uh, but some videos feature Scott in his car wearing sunglasses, <laughs> like a dashboard cam, or standing in front of a big whiteboard like a lo-fi Glenn Beck, drawing crooked Venn diagrams, circling words, and drawing lines between the circled words. You know, the usual boomer YouTube fare. His titles are works of art. President Trump can save the planet with a tweet. Hashtag fentanyl China. Beyonce. Enjoying the full-bodied flavor of coffee and exoneration. Mmm, exoneration. A linguistic kill shot for religious extremism. Persuasion lesson. Kanye showed the way to the golden age. How to open a childproof container using a saw. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. He thinks thinks he's so interesting that when he has to, like, repair his toilet or something, it becomes, like, his his podcast episode. (laughs) 
Well, the last one is especially confusing. Yeah. It's like there's usually childproof containers usually come with instructions of how to open them. Yeah, no, you need yeah, a, you need a saw that adults can read. No, you need a saw. He's a genius and he's brilliant, and you definitely need a saw for that. So his episodes always open in the same incredibly annoying way. I've made a small montage uh, to demonstrate, and I'm I'm sorry in advance. Um, bum, 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 bum. Well, well, well. Do, 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 do. Ba, 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 ba. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hey, where is everybody? Hey, everybody. These are separate ones. Hey, border collie lover. I've got a toy Australian Shepherd. Same kind of family. Cousins to your dogs. That me- <laughs> there are- <laughs> Hey, everybody. Yo, it's like hey. it's, got, it's got like a red pilled Mr. Rogers vibe. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, you're here. Hello. Oh, yeah. You walked on me uh, humming to myself. Oh, he's just one of those guys that here. like desperately wants to take up space anywhere he goes, so he has to like <laughs> fill it with stuff like. Pom, pom, I'm so happy I'm humming to myself and drinking my coffee. We got the same dog. And then after that, he follows that. By the way, every time with the simultaneous sip. So if you want to tune into him, you have to put up with two minutes of that before you get to any content. Um, no matter. On March 22nd of 2017, the election a few months behind us, a Bloomberg writer named Caroline Winter writes an article entitled How Scott Adams Got Hypnotized by Trump. In it, she explains how Adams' rhetoric on his blog, which in mid-2015 was read by about 10,000 people a day, was diametrically opposed to Washington thinking. At a time when virtually the entire professional political class was convinced that Trump would self-immolate, Adams' essay reframed his actions as the deliberate work of a political savant. Trump, he wrote, was using such persuasion 101 tricks as anchors, intentional exaggeration, and thinking past the sale to wage three-dimensional chess. And this is where we tie it all into our favorite conspiracy theory. QAnon. Mm. I think there's a good argument to be made that Adams was a spiritual forefather to the QAnon bakers who interpret cryptic 8chan posts and discern secret messages in Trump's body language. Here's the Bloomberg article again. As Trump extended his run, Adams kept pace with a near-daily flow of blog posts and live-streaming analysis, making himself indispensable as one of Trump's most appreciative interpreters. He made the case that even the most erratic Trump moments were tactically brilliant and that this was an insight that he alone could see. Mm-hmm. Quote, my predictions are based on my unique view into Trump's toolbox of persuasion, end quote, Adams wrote at the outset, reminding readers that he was a certified hypnotist. <laughs> quote, I believe those tools are invisible to most everybody but trained hypnotists and people that study the science of persuasion, end quote. As Trump kept winning, Adams was invited onto CNN, BBC, HBO, and other platforms. He amassed 140,000 Twitter followers, and on some days, his blog readership spiked to almost 450,000. 
So, wow. So, huh. yeah. So, very clearly, first of all, there's, he, I mean, he's literally talking about interpreting like secret yeah. signals that only he can see. Yeah, that's right. He's there's, a secret genius. He, he, the, 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 the 3D chess. Like, yes, that's right. He's, yeah, he's like, this is a hundred percent Q. So, so he hates Q because they, they stole his shtick. <laughs> right, they make right. him look stupid. Yeah. Because yeah. mm. he, he couches it all in, you know, pseudoscience, pseudo right, right. logic. Whereas Q doesn't bother with that. Well, they well he well they do they but they they sort of put the stock in um, religion and faith. Yeah. You know he thinks he's making really intelligent stuff accessible to the public, but of course it all masks like this deeply mystical bullshit of like persuasion yeah. and yeah. and you know understanding like the the yeah, secret, secret stuff. Social dynamics yeah, and, and, and QAnon has come right out and said, "Hey, it's the secret stuff. It's the magical stuff. It's it's you know it's God and it's angels." Yeah. And I'll bet that that fucking angers Adams to no end because oh, yeah. he's like he's like, "Well, he doesn't like religion." He's like, "Well, this is making my stuff look dumb." Well, we'd like to take a moment to thank CNN, BBC, and HBO for helping him go from ten thousand readers to 450,000 readers, and in the process, of course, bringing more attention to Trump, validating him as some sort of intelligent and useful alternative, and potentially helping him win. Thank you, media. So uh, as Adams builds an audience for his writing about Trump, he also starts shedding divorced dad spores. Mm. He ends 2015 with an article about using persuasion and hypnosis to get better orgasms. This garners him fans in the men's rights activist community through the sheer confidence of statements like, quote, for the few women reading this, my language skills activate your sex drive, and I know it. He begins dating a 28-year-old Instagram beauty influencer. <laughs> who, she's very, like, she's a beauty, but she's also kind of a booby influencer. Like, one in three photos is, like, a from the top down with cleavage. Um, but she, she has, and this is props uh, to her, she has, like, I think 4.5 million followers on Instagram. Nice. And uh, I also got to give props to Scott on this one. When he started going out with her, it wasn't, like, just, it seems deeper than that. Like, he takes care of her, both of her children uh, that, that would have another dad. So, I don't know, there's something kind of, like, touching about this part of the story, even though it definitely is a divorced dad thing to date a 28-year-old yeah, <laughs> influencer. Right. But, but still, it doesn't, seem, um, it doesn't seem completely false. And so, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. Despite his early claims that his coverage of Trump was neutral... Uh, Adams seems to have actively accelerated his own red pilling. Here's from the Bloomberg article. Well, Adams eventually endorsed Trump. He told me he didn't vote because he feels he doesn't know enough about international affairs, economics, or science. No shit. Still, he views his blog as an act of service. Quote, I'm at a point where I'm trying to be more useful than selfish, he said. I decided to gamble with my own income and my own reputation to let people see Trump through a different framework, if not a more accurate frame, end quote. One consequence, Adam said, is that his paid speaking requests have dried up. <laughs> Quote, in 20 years, there's never been a week I didn't get a speaking request, and now it's been months, end quote, he said. Yeah, so Scott claims that his income fell by 40% as he rode the Trump train deeper into MAGA Mountain. In October of 2017, Adams publishes Win Bigly, the cover of which is a uh, dogbert wearing a Trump wig. Uh, in it, he compares Trump to Steve Jobs. The book description includes a claim by Scott Adams that he is providing the reader with nothing less than, quote, access to the admin passwords to human beings. It seems Adams' final form is some bizarre combination of MAGA chud, pickup artist, and self-help guru. The book becomes a New York Times bestseller. Because nothing means anything. 
You can put Dogbert in a fucking Trump wig and compare him to Steve Jobs and people will still buy your book. So if you're out there wondering whether your book is worthy, it is. As long as you're an incredibly rich guy who spent his whole life drawing a tiny cartoon dog. Scott continues to write blog posts and stream video daily. He still cloaks his love for Trump in dollar bin psychology, science, and rationalism. The audience for his personal ranting has considerably expanded since his pre-election days, but the red pilling of Scott Adams is nothing recent. Back in June of 2016, Adams briefly features a social justice warrior in his comic strip, and we're going to try to read this for you. I'll explain what's happening, and you two will, will act as the two voices. So the, the pointy-haired boss, the dumb boss, is on the left. He's, he's looking at a little tablet, and he's, he's talking to social justice warrior who's a, just a regular guy with a goatee, basically. According to people on the internet, you are what's called a social justice warrior. The tone of your voice indicates you are against me, and that means you are making common cause with racists. If I hire you, will you stop saying crazy stuff like that? Censorship! The censorship thing is particularly funny in light of what we're about to cover. On May 24th, Scott Adams posts a Twitter poll. Quote, have you ever had the experience of following me on Twitter only to have Twitter reverse it to an unfollow? 82% of respondents answer, no, never. <laughs> but people in the replies disagree with this majority. A user called Baby Ass Titnip says, <laughs> says, yeah. says, quote, used to happen all the time. Another user called Uncle Two Beers says, I thought I'd started following you a year ago only to find out recently that I wasn't. Shrug emoji. Injured Thales says, maybe Twitter just has a crappy code because they're more focused on SJWism than on producing a great product. Another user complains that after getting into a fight with, quote, an idiot quasi-famous rapper, the same started happening to him. On the same day he posts the poll, Scott Adams resets the slaughter meter. This is written up by Breitbart, who finds the analysis quite profound. So what is the slaughter meter? Well, I'm going to let Scott explain. The slaughter meter is a measure of how the election will go and whether President Trump will win by a small slaughter or a large slaughter. But of course, things always change. So it's not a prediction. It's just sort of a, if nothing changed, this is where you would end up. I have downgraded the slaughter meter from 140%. Uh, I've reset that to zero. <laughs> so my, my current thinking is that the president has no chance of re-election. So Scott goes on to argue uh, that Trump would have no chance of winning if the current situation persists, as he mentioned there. But what is the situation that he's talking about? What exactly has changed to warrant Trump's chances falling by 140% all the way down to zero? Well, Scott does not waste any time telling on himself. Um, we see people like uh, Dave Rubin being demonetized. Uh, whole, a lot of my, I would say a hundred of my videos were demonetized. I have every resource you would need to determine whether I'm shadow banned. If I asked the reasons for it, and I haven't, um, I'm sure there'd be some reason that didn't sound very convincing to me. But the things demonetized, coincidentally, are the same things that would be the most damaging to the Democrats. Might be a coincidence, but I don't know. The fact that I can't determine that, and there's no mechanism for me to determine that, means that there is no oversight on the most um, important lever of our democracy. 
So what the fuck is he talking about? He got demonetized on YouTube. So democracy is in danger and Trump definitely won't win if things continue this way. He he's so petty and self-obsessed right. that he reset his 140% slaughter meter to zero because he got demonetized. It's 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 it's, it's really weird. It's like it's one of those things where they where a lot of these a lot of these grifters they they all tie their sort of like their personal success to sort of like Trump's success. They really see them as like one of the same. And if they start slagging, well, I guess that means that Trump is in trouble too. Yeah, or, or, exactly. Or what that that because he's shadow banned or whatever that. Uh, his YouTube channel won't be able to get out the necessary facts that uh, if only people heard them, they would definitely vote for Donald Trump. Like, is that what he's implying? I think his logic is that, first of all, he, he prides himself on predicting the future, but he couldn't predict that social media might demonetize some of his more ho- hateful videos. That means that his predictive powers that had a 140% are so bad that he fucked up by 140% and realized it overnight. Now, let's be honest, there's none of that happening. It's just a narcissist and an idiot right. resetting his imaginary dumbass meter. That The whole point of the meter was to say that Trump was going to win no matter what. It's just going to be a slaughter, 140%. I mean, the fact that you can then like in it, pretend to, to like science or math or anything... When you're yeah. doing shit like this, it's like you're dumb. You're you're literally like dumber than Seb Gorka at this point. Like you make Seb Gorka sound like he has a point. It's like I I was gonna come to your birthday party definitely, but then I found out that I didn't get as many likes on the Facebook photo of me saying I was coming. So therefore, I'll never come to your birthday party right. ever again. Yo. You know what this guy is? Is that I think Scott Adams is like the the firefighter prophet, uh, Mark Taylor, the guy who had like a dream that he's, that they, that that Trump would become president, and then like he, he rode this rode this prediction to like a weird <laughs> social media success. He is exactly like that, but he has this quasi sort of logical scientific gloss yeah. on top of it, and he but just happens to be. The guy who wrote Dilbert, like it doesn't. Right, right, right. None of it fits together. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Uh, I remember reading it when I was a teen and being like, "This guy's amazing. He can oh. like change reality with his brain." So I was like <laughs> thirteen or some fucking idiot kid. Uh, but I do like the idea that if you use Scott Adams' logic, all you have to do is remonetize him on YouTube if you're Trump, and you can go back to having a hundred and forty percent chance of winning in twenty twenty. So Trump, all you need to win is to remonetize about a hundred videos Dude, you from could, the guy who made Dilbert. You could do, you know, uh, Mr. Trump. You could actually just monetize maybe sixty-five percent of them, which would, you know, bring you to a cool hundred yeah, percent as opposed right, to a hundred and forty percent. Yeah, I mean, either way, the math is good, and <laughs> there's a lot to learn here. If you're Donald Trump, there's a lot to learn here. So yeah, that's that's my little perusing of Scott Adams. Mm. I think he fits with so many of the other profiles we've dealt with around QAnon, and he is. The Trump Baker. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, he did sort of like really flesh out this whole 3D chess idea that Trump is just operating on the level that secret intelligence uh, that are uh, that us our mere mortal brains cannot possibly grasp yeah yeah all you have to do is read the secret three or four times and then you can understand Trump's brain right that's the life he was dreaming about while, he, while he's working on Dilbert it's like this comic I've been working on for a decade to make work so I can do it full time that's one thing what I really want to do is tell people about my bizarre sort of philo- philosophy about like persuasion and hypnotism yeah don't learn from Matt Groening and make like Futurama yeah you know don't don't learn from Mike Judge and make King of the Hill. 
just continue to make the strip you clearly hate yeah. while you slowly mentally deteriorate. His strong opposition to QAnon is interesting because like there is some overlap in his sort of his uh, support of the whole 3D chess theory, but also in his sort of his idea like uh, that persuasion rules over everything. It's not facts don't matter. What matters is whether or not you're a master persuader. And that's sort of what he he sort of uh, respects about Trump. Well, why doesn't he sort of respect, uh, let's say, uh, uh, QAnon for being able to persuade so many crazy people? Why doesn't he say like, oh, yeah, yeah, Q is a, is a mass persuader for these X, Y, and Z reasons? Um, you know, it seems like it'll line up with these interests. But, you know, like Jake said, maybe it's just the case that uh, that uh, Q is honing in on some of his action. You know? Well, he feels, and he literally said it in a previous quote, that he... Uh, he took the risk, he put his career and his money and all that stuff on the line to give a better framework into Trump, which means he's like, there's no way back, basically. And someone like QAnon showing up makes his like kind of strong position look weaker and kind of stupider by association. Gotcha. So he's pissed because he's like, guys, I've laid everything down, like, you know, all my resources, you know, everything I got, my money, my power, and this is how you repay me? <laughs> You go and you <laughs> worship some 4chan lunatic. You should be worshiping me instead. I've done 500 videos. Don't you uh, want a simultaneous sip with me? Yeah, what does QAnon have to offer? Drink the blood of children? <laughs> I mean, for me, you just walk to Starbucks, uh, get your favorite blend, and uh, get home, uh, ground it up, uh, pour it in your cup here, and have a sip. You've been listening to the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Our Twitters are at QAnon Anonymous, at Travis underscore View, at Julian Fields, and at Real Rockitansky. We refuse to allow corporate advertisement on our show. That's why we gate our second weekly episode behind a $5 a month subscription. So visit patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for $5 a month and get access to a weekly premium episode, plus all the ones we've already recorded. The faster we grow, the closer we get to making more varied content. Thank you. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. That was it. I mean, I, I closed it right away. Well, I closed the contest. Was, I, I'm sure that was his name. It wasn't yeah. like I was assigning a name, it was, it was like that was his name. All right. Roll tape here. This is um, a flashback to his youth in which Dilbert re recollects the first time you realize that he had a knack for technology and that he would become an engineer. Here it is. We have a big problem here. Drop everything you're doing and solve it. I'm gonna be late for work. Oh, this is far more important than your career. You always say that. Well, this time it's true. The TV's not working. I've been sitting here for nearly a minute without entertainment. Change the battery in the remote. The one on the left. The one on the left? Well, that's just spooky. Not really. I have the knack. The knack? For technology. My mom says I always have. I'm worried about little Dilbert. He's not like other kids. What do you mean? Yesterday, I left him alone for a minute, and he disassembled the TV, our clock, and the stereo. That's perfectly normal. Kids take things apart. Oh, the part that worries me is he used the components to build a ham radio set. Oh, dear. <laughs>